Gracious Father, thank you for your immense and incredible love for us. Lord, we sang the song, Jesus, lover of my soul. And we don't think about that as much as we should. How much you care about our eternal destination. God, you, you care about it probably more than we do. But I'm so grateful that you've drawn us to yourself, that you've revealed your son to us, brought us to a place of receiving him so that we could be saved. I pray as we dive into your word tonight that you would give us wisdom and guidance, that your spirit would be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we went through a number of kings in Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And we will do more of that back and forth as we continue in First and Second Kings. At the end of chapter 16, Ahab became king over Israel. And Ahab was the worst of them all. The most abominable thing that he did was marry Jezebel and allow her to influence him to bring in Baal worship to Israel. Now, if you recall from last week, Baal, or who we lovingly call, not lovingly, okay, who we call Beelzebub, lovingly, who we lovingly call Satan. No, we do not lovingly call him anything. Um, but uh, Baal, or Beelzebub, uh, literally means Lord of the Flies. Um, and here, it's essentially he brought Satan worship into Israel. As this evil king gains power, and influence. God raises up a prophet, Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite, to cry out against the evil being done and warn the people at the lowest point of Israel's spiritual deprivation. God raises up this prophet and he continued to try to speak to his people. Chapter 17. 1 Kings, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here, and turn eastward, hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherish, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Um, let's start with Elijah's name. El... El means God. Jah, Yah, however you want to pronounce it, is the YHVH, the name of God. So his name literally means God Jehovah or God Yahweh. Interesting name. And it's even more interesting to me that he is noted as a Tishbite. 
Now, as far as where Tishbe is, it doesn't really matter. It was a place near Gilead in the northern kingdom, south of the Sea of Galilee. I said it didn't matter, but I wrote it down. Um, (laughs) But the word Tishbe, the word means recourse. And there are a lot of other possible uses or or, um, possible ways to translate this word. Because it can also mean help or way out, or repay, or remedy, choice, option. Some interesting definitions. Now, I do not believe that there are coincidences in the world in general, and especially not in Scripture. Elijah Elijah is chosen by God's sovereignty, and his name literally means God Jehovah is your help. Elijah the Tishbite. Or God Jehovah is your remedy. Or he is your choice. Or he is your way out. Or he is your option. But also means God Jehovah is the one who will repay. And I think that's just astounding. Because if you spoke Hebrew which Ahab did and everybody else back then did, um, at least those we're speaking about here in Scripture, they knew what his name meant. They understood when, oh, Elijah the Tishbite made this prophecy. They knew what it meant. Even the man's name is a message from God for the people that God is the way out, and if they refuse to take it, he's the one who will repay now, his first prophecy is to tell Abraham, Abraham, wow, to tell Ahab that there would be a drought and it would not rain again until Elijah said so. Actually, once God tells him to say so. Now, he speaks of God Jehovah as the God of Israel, right? He says that, um, I turned a page and then I looked in the wrong spot. Boy, this is going to be fun tonight. That he said, um, as the Lord God of Israel lives, because Baal was not the Lord God of Israel. Now, James talked about Elijah up in chapter 5 of James, verses 16 through 18. It says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And he goes on, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain. And the earth produced its fruit. I find it interesting that Elijah was a guy like everyone else. With a nature like ours is a nice way of saying that he had a sin nature. What made him so usable by God? He was a man of prayer. And he was one who would heed the word of the Lord when it came to him. And he would be obedient to it. Now, God gave Elijah supernatural provision by the brook Cherish, Cher, Cherith, uh, which is, of course, a brook near his home and is one of many that fed the Jordan River. Um, You've got to imagine his faith, though. He go, first, God says, go to Ahab and tell him a drought's coming, which could have cost him his life. Then he says, go down by the brook. You'll have water, and the ravens are going to bring you food. Uh, Lord, you know, should I pack a bag? No! 
uh, should I, you know, stop at Walmart and, you know, pick up some ding-dongs and cupcakes or no, just go. Right. Of course, I'm being facetious. There was no Walmart back then. And he goes down and it's exactly he did according to the word of the Lord. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. After a while, the brook dried up. Now, I have absolutely no problem with this. Because I am perfectly aware that God can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it. He can work however he chooses to work. And I always go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we believe that verse, nothing that follows should be difficult for us to believe. Right? Why would it be difficult for us to believe that God can stop the sun? He created it. Why would it be difficult for us to believe that he can part the Red Sea? Why would it be difficult for us to believe that he can raise the dead? Right? It shouldn't be. Not even a bit. Now, I was listening to Pastor Chuck preparing for this, and he told a story that I had to borrow because it's just too good. So there's a story of a man in China from a while back, and he was a Christian who had been in charge of food distribution in a certain district under the communist regime. The man saw the needs of the people, and he gave away all of his portion as well. Once all the other food was distributed, he saw that there were still people in need, so he took his food and gave it away. And he, that night, he sat down at his table and prayed for the Lord to give him something to eat. And then he noticed a rat pushing a yam through a hole in the wall. Now, this happened multiple times. And as the story goes, there was one time when he was having a guest over and he prayed and the rat pushed two yams through the hole. If you want to look it up, the man's name is Brother Yun. Y-U-N, Brother Yun. God can work however he wants and through whoever he wants and do to do whatever he wants. And we've seen him use a donkey. We see him using ravens. We just talked that story that we're about him using rats, and he uses us. So congratulations. You're at least as useful as a donkey, a rat, or a bird. Verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, and that we may eat it and die. Cheery woman! This widow of Zarephath, right? Just sunshines and unicorn. Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, 
which he spoke by Elijah. So when the brook dries up, which is another interesting question, why he didn't have to let the brook dry up, right? He's God, he can do whatever he wants. But he had another plan. He had something else he wanted to do. So he tells Elijah, go up to Zarephath. And he tells Elijah, or maybe he doesn't, I don't know, we're not actually given when Elijah receives this word from the Lord, but Elijah's obedient. And he goes up and he meets this woman and he asks for a glass of water, a cup of water, which is really interesting in that culture. Uh, because in that culture, you could not refuse that request. Didn't matter what you were doing. It didn't matter who you were. If somebody asked you for a glass of water, a cup of water, they had to give it to you. It was just the way it was. And he goes, you know, uh, while you're at it, can you bring me something to eat? And she goes, well, I really don't have anything left. I'm going to make a little bit and me and my son are going to croak. And he goes, I'll tell you what, this is what God said. You're not going to run out. Make it for me first and then make for you and your family. Now, could you imagine, just like Brother Yoon, who gave all of his food away, not knowing how he was going to eat that night. This woman took the flour she had and made Elijah a cake. She didn't know. She wasn't even an Israelite. She was a Gentile. But at the word of the Lord, she did. And in her obedience, God once again provides supernaturally, not just for Elijah, but also for the widow and her son. And, you know, the whole idea of household here, we're just told that it's a widow and her son, but she may have had siblings, she may have had nieces, who knows how many people were actually fed by this miracle. And I love it because we should never put God in a box. We should never limit him in any way. He's going to do what he wants to do and how he's going to do it, however he wants to do it. And our part is to trust him by his grace. This is what Elijah says to the widow. Do this and God will care for you. We trust God first and he cares for us. Matthew 6, Jesus taught us this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. In that verse we love that verse. Seek first, yeah, that may, oh yeah, we got to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he's going to take care of everything else. But when you put it in the context of Matthew chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the whole latter half of that chapter is Jesus telling us to trust. Telling us to not worry about the clothing we're going to wear. Because if God can clothe the flowers of the field, he can clothe us. To not worry about food, because if God can feed the birds of the air, he can feed us. And so he says, instead of worrying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of everyone who does that perfectly every day. Because I know I don't. But I do think it's interesting that we have the option. We could seek first his kingdom. We could trust him to take care of everything else and not worry about it. But we don't. At least not all the time. Now when Jesus taught us to pray in the same chapter, Matthew 6, in verse 11, he says, Give us this day our daily bread. 
And I think it harkens back to when harkens. I actually wrote the word harkens in my note. In my notes, harkens back to when God provided manna for the children of Israel. Uh, it started in Exodus 16 and it continued uh, until Israel entered the land about 42 years later. Now, the law concerning manna was simple. Gather what you need every day. And the day before the Sabbath, gather for two days. Why? Because God wanted his people to trust in him, to take care of them every single day. And if you remember back, the first day that the manna fell, they had received the instructions, just collect enough for the day. Multiple people gathered a bunch. And then it, it, it rotted and had worms in it and, and they had to throw it out. But when they gathered the day before the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, it didn't rot or have worms. God wants to know, wants us to know, and he wants us to trust him to take care of us every single day. That's why Jesus went on to say back in Matthew 6, 34, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Our problem is twofold, I think. First, we don't seek him first. And that's always going to be an issue for us. Second, we don't trust that God can do something just because we don't understand it. He has resources we know nothing about. I've always loved the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk prays to God and he says, God, I want you to do something. And God says back to Habakkuk, well, I could tell you what I'm going to do, but you won't believe me. And Habakkuk says, no, 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 Lord, tell me, tell me, tell me. He goes, okay, I'm going to bring the nation of Babylon to take Israel into captivity. And Habakkuk's like, whoa, why would you bring this pagan nation that's clearly much worse than Israel to punish your people Israel? And God was like, I told you. Okay, that's not how it really went down. But I always like that. Uh, he tells Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 4, that the just shall live by faith. And that is a phrase that we see three times in Scripture. Um, oh, come on, brain. Once spoken to Abraham, once spoken to Habakkuk, and once quoted to the church in Galatia, if I'm correct. And that's, I don't quote me, I could be wrong on that. But that's how we are to live. We don't have to understand it. We don't have to have an explanation you know, I think back to Philip when he was sent to the Ethiopian eunuch. It's kind of like Elijah here. Elijah, go to Zarephath. Why? Well, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. Okay, which one? Right? Philip, go down to the road by the desert. Okay. Philip, overtake the chariot. All right. Wasn't until he overtook the chariot and when he heard the eunuch reading from Isaiah 53. And so he runs up and goes, hey, you know what that's talking about? And he's like, no, how could I know unless someone tells me? So he gets up into the chariot and he preaches the gospel from Isaiah 53, which in all fairness is a really easy place to preach the gospel from in the book of Isaiah. Um, but what are the chances that the Ethiopian eunuch of all the scrolls he could have purchased while in Israel, he purchased the scroll of Isaiah? And then, what are the chances 
that of all the places in the book of Isaiah that he could have been reading, he was reading what we call chapter 53. They didn't call it chapter 53 back then. The just shall live by faith. I love it. Now, the widow of Zarephath should sound familiar to us from our studies in Luke. In Luke chapter 4, verse 23 through 26, uh, this is Jesus speaking. You will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, we also, he also talks about Naaman, uh, who was healed of leprosy uh, later on. Uh, but both, he, he says, why didn't God send Elijah to a, a widow who was an Israelite? Why did he send her or send him to a widow who was a Gentile? And the Jews, they sat there and they pondered this and they went, wow, you're right. That, no, they didn't. What did they do? They led him off to a hill and they tried to kill him. And he walked through the crowd and went on his way. It is a good question, but it's a question we don't have an answer to. Other than God loves the Gentiles as much as he loves the Jews. And this woman clearly believed in the God of the one true God. Verse 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. That is a nice way of saying he died. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms, so he must have been a small, smaller child, and carried him up to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. The woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What, eating for three years by an unending jar of flour and oil wasn't enough? I do find her reaction quite interesting. She says, what do I have to do with you? O man of God, have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? So she had a very wrong view, which many people back then had. And this was a view that persisted up until Jesus' day um, among the Jewish people that um, her son's death was equated with her own sin. Now, there's no place in the Old Testament or the New Testament that says that. 
But we see this attitude in John chapter 9. In verse 1, Jesus passed by. He saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And then he goes on, and he heals the man, and he finds him later. um, It's pretty fantastic. There's a whole lot that goes on after that. But they asked, who sinned? Was it his parents? Or did he sin? Now, he was blind from birth. That's because the Jewish people of the time believed you could sin in the womb. I don't know where that came from, right? Again, um, you know, there's a passage... Oh, gosh, is it Psalm 51, if I'm correct? Uh, When David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. Um, But that has nothing to do with with the child sinning in the womb. That has to do with uh, the sin nature being passed on. But I find it interesting. So she apparently had the same idea. Now, Elijah has to pray three times. God listens and raises him from the dead. It is believed that the sentence in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, that says women received back their dead by resurrection, Hebrews 11, 35, that it was referring to this. Uh, Even though we'll see another instance with Elijah, Elisha, later on. So the first thing I want to point out, um, besides her equating her own sin with her son's death, um, which we're going to come back to in a moment, was that Elijah had to pray three times before God resurrected the boy. Jesus prayed three times in the garden for the cup to pass from him, but he surrendered to the will of God and the cup did not pass from him. Paul prayed three times in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that the thorn in his flesh would be taken. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You see, God does not have to give us what we want. He will answer prayer according to his perfect will and in his perfect time. And some like to teach that if you follow, uh, well, some like to falsely teach that if you follow the right formula, or you say the right words, or you give enough money, then God has to heal you, or he has to give you what you want. I remember talking to somebody, this was a few years back, and they were talking about how they wanted to go to um, some kind of healing conference. I'm like, healing? or Not that they wanted to, they had gone to some type of healing conference. And they said, things seemed really wacky to me. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, they had classes on where you place your hands on a person to play, to pray for specific ailments. You know, if you have a headache, you got to place your fingers here and, and there. And if, and you know, and if they have some kind of cancer, then you have to place your, like, where does it say that in the Bible? It's all a lie. Not that God can heal, but that anything like that would be the impetus for it. He is God. We are not. He's going to give us what's good for us. He's not going to withhold from us 
something that is good for us. But it will always be according to his perfect will and timing. So we shouldn't get angry when we don't get what we want or ask for. But we should trust that God will be glorified through his no in our lives or through his yes or my least favorite, through his weight. So she equated her son's death. Now, I do want to make a quick comparison because I think this is, these certain things, they just pop out and they fascinate me. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, Jeroboam's son. And God allowed Jeroboam's son to die in order to spare him the violent end that was going to come to Jeroboam's house. Here, God allows the child to die because he intends to resurrect him. Now, we see that same thing with Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus tells Martha, well, first, right, he hears that he's sick, and they're like, shouldn't we go? And he's like, nope, we're going to wait. And then a couple days later, he goes, it's time to go. He goes, because our friend Lazarus is sleeping. And they go, oh, well, that's good. Won't, won't sleeping make him feel better? And he looks at him, he goes, no, he's dead. But, you know, if we go through Jerusalem, didn't they try to kill you there? And, and he says to Thomas, we're going. And Thomas says, well, we might as well go with him and die. Right? Just a cheery, cheery bunch. <laughs> he gets there. And the first thing Martha says to him, if you had just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And in John eleven twenty six, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus waited for Lazarus to die. God, he can do things that we will not understand. And we have no right to demand it. And he owes us no explanation. Because he is God, and we are not. But I think this instance here in 1 Kings 17, and then what we read about in John chapter 11, uh, brings up something that I, I've mentioned before, but I think it's true. Sometimes we want a healing when God wants a resurrection. Now, healing a person who's sick is a miracle. Bringing them back from the dead seems a little more bold. And then she, now I know, right? Now I know, right? We, that we don't know how long he was there. Uh, we do know when we get into chapter 18 that we're getting right to the end of the, um, the drought. So this has been a couple years, most likely, that this has been going on. But the widow says, now I believe you. Which I find just incredible. She didn't believe him with all the other stuff. Right? He made a prophetic utterance. We're not gonna, you're not going to run out of flour. You're not going to run out of oil. That prophetic statement came true, proving that Elijah is a prophet. Why did she need the resurrection of her son? I don't know, but I do find it quite 
fascinating. We've talked about this a couple times. And because we're only um, looking at one chapter and we have a few minutes, I'm just going to bring up something that I've been harping on a lot lately. That we know prophecy is true when it comes to pass. If it doesn't come to pass, the person who gave the prophecy is a false prophet and must be ignored. You see, we have an enemy who works overtime to deceive us. And you can't even let a little bit of that deception in. We're told in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 2 Peter 2, Peter warns us that false prophets will rise among the people, that false teachers will rise among them who will bring in destructive heresies, even denying their master. There's a number of other places like Ezekiel 22, 8 and Jeremiah 14 and Deuteronomy 18, um, all of which speak of how we're going to know a prophet's true because what they say will come to pass and we're going to know they're not true if they don't. And um, also there in Deuteronomy 18, it's commanded that if there is a false prophet, you're supposed to stone him. Now, I know this is harsh, but don't you kind of wish we hadn't done away with stoning? There are so many people in the world, and, and, you know, and I'm not judge, jury, and executioner, and nor do I want God's justice. I don't want God's justice on me, and so I don't pray for God's justice on other people. Um, but man, there's so many people, so many things in our world that are working overtime to deceive. You know, we have an enemy that's working overtime to deceive. We have marketing that's trying to deceive and, and media that's trying to deceive and celebrities that are trying to deceive and politicians and so on and so forth. And, you know, I, I think if we stoned a few of them, <laughs> might calm things down a little bit. I don't know. Facebook, I'm not calling for violence against anybody. I promise. Big disclaimer. You know, and when we think about God's justice, though I would never pray for it for anybody, we can rest assured that it will happen in its time. My wife was playing a song before service started. Just follow me over there. It'll be fun. Uh, do you want to know where? <laughs> Psalm 73. Psalm 73. I know this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but we're done with chapter 17 and I got to keep you here for five more minutes. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Psalm 73 starts off so beautifully. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Right? Isn't that a beautiful opening line to a psalm? But as for me, verse 2, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on, right? There's no pangs of death for them. Their pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. He gets to verse 13. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued. Right? And, and don't, don't we... 
from time to th time think of this? Anybody? Am I the only one? Right? I, I try to live a life that honors God. I try to live a life of integrity and honesty and, and fairness because that's what God has called me to. That's the example that Jesus has given us. That's his life being formed in each of us. And then we look at, at wicked and horrible people who are worth millions or billions of dollars and we, we hear about dictators in other countries murdering thousands or millions and, and we look, you know, why? Why? And, and it's enough, like the psalmist here, to take a step back and go, Asaph, by the way, it wasn't David, it was Asaph. Now, why, why are we doing what we're doing? Shouldn't we just, you know, if the wicked are being prosperous, why don't we just give up? Until you get to verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord, then I understood their end. And that's the difference, folks. And it's the beautiful difference. We have in Christ an eternal hope that the wicked do not have. And it doesn't matter how prosperous they are here. It doesn't matter how influential they may think they are. It doesn't matter how famous. Without Christ, their life will end up being meaningless. And that's sad. So instead of praying for God's justice, instead of hoping for wicked things to befall them. We should pray for them. And we should ask for God to bring the gospel into their lives before it's too late. Next week, we get to my favorite account in Elijah's life and ministry. Next week, Elijah faces off against the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And the reason it is one of my favorite uh, not just favorite accounts in Elijah's life, but one of my favorite accounts in all of Scripture is because of Elijah's great and beautiful sarcasm. <laughs> but we'll get to that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example you give us in Scripture, for how you show us, my great king, the things that are good for us, the things we need to avoid, how you show us that you work in different but miraculous ways so that we can't pigeonhole you or we should never try. Thank you for the promise of your provision. And thank you, Lord. I know there's areas in all of our lives where we're hoping for healing. And I do pray, Father, that you would grant it. But maybe... Just maybe. You want to let something die so you can bring a resurrection. I ain't praying for that, Lord. But we will surrender to your will because we know that everything you do is good and everything you do is because you love us. And we trust you in it. In Jesus' name, amen.